I wanted to just, if you didn't know, we had our vacation Bible school this, this week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and it was, I'd say it was a really good time. I think we had like anywhere between 22 to 27 kids on any, on one of those, on each one of those days. So, and again, most of them don't go to our church, but because of you guys, your prayers, and, and all the people that came out to help, we were able to bless those kids. So thank you guys so much for your prayers and support. That was awesome. <laughs> if Mindy was here, she, I know she would thank you. Unfortunately, my little son Jonathan woke up yesterday with a sore throat. So she said she'd stay home instead of preaching the message today. So no, I'm just kidding. But uh, so she's home with him. So keep him in prayer as well. And as Mike mentioned, yeah, Bob Santa went into the hospital on Wednesday and so keep praying for them. I'm going to ask John to remind me again. Today they, can you help me, John, again? You showed me your text. They're 85% off of the ventilator. Uh, I just got a text saying they're hoping to take him off completely or otherwise. So that's, that's really good news. So keep him in prayer. He, him and Debbie, are, are, he's in a hospital, obviously, at Kaiser, and his wife Debbie's with him, and his son and daughter-in-laws are there, too, when they can be. So keep him in prayer, both. Bob, Debbie, and John and Ben and their wives as well and the whole family. Let's pray for them now before we start our message. Lord God, we come before you to intercede for our brother Bob, that you would continue to heal his body. Lord, that he would not feel anything right now as far as the pain that he may be going through, that he may be resting, that you would heal his body quickly, Lord God, and we might see him back in our congregation soon. Pray for the rest of the family as well, Lord, that you would give them peace and comfort, knowing that you love Bob, that you are with him, and that he is your child. And Lord, you know all things, and you know what is best for him and for his family, and may they trust in that promise, Lord God. And we also pray this morning for our service, that you would speak mightily to each and every one of us as we open your word, and we pray this in your name, amen. All right, well, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter looking at verses 12 through 22, and the title of the sermon this morning is The Vindication of God and His, and His People. You may be thinking, yeah, finally some vindication. Have you ever thought, at least in your Christian life, it always seems that we are the downtrodden, on the losing side. How come it seems that evil prevails and righteousness doesn't? Does it ever seem like that, or is that just me? You know, that our world is continually getting evil, even something like, you know, our brother getting sick. You're like, come on, Lord. You know, we're trying to, to move forward as a church body, and then this happens within our congregation. And, it's, and it was, you know, it was ironic that it's the day that VBS starts, and God is, you know, doing something great here, and then this happens, and it looks like, well, what's going on? Why does God allow these things to happen? You ever wonder that in life? Like, when will righteousness prevail? When will all injustices be righted? Well, fortunately, there is a time that that will happen. And even in our text this morning, as we look at ancient Judah, there was finally a time that all the warnings are going to stop for the nation. And God will be vindicated, and His people will be vindicated as well. And we'll see that in this morning's sermon, and we'll also see how each, that is, holds true for each and every one of us. Just as we sung, you know, God delights in mercy. 
And mercy triumphs over judgment. Even in the final day, mercy will reign supreme. And I hope you see that this morning as we go through the text. I thought that was just a a great song to kind of wrap up this morning's sermon. And again, I pray that you see that as we go through it. So let's start in in verse 12. And we're going to pick up in the middle of Isaiah's prophecy to Judah. If you remember last week, he was talking about abandoning his people to themselves. Because they wanted to leave God and do what they wanted. There is a point where God says, okay, fine, do what you want, but you're going to suffer the consequences of that. And thankfully, sometimes when he does that, people come to their senses and realize that they actually need God and they cry out to God and God is glorified in that. But there seems like a long delay in that process. And here in Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 12, the prophet is telling the nation Judah that there is a day that the warning stops. And judgment comes. And let's read that account this morning. So starting in verse 12. He says this, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And it will be against the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in the day, or in that day. But the idols will be completely vanished, Men will go into caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. In order to go into the cavern of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord And the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For what should, for why should he be esteemed? And that's where Isaiah ends this section here. So again, going back to the very beginning, starting in verse 12, he's telling us the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. Now, what does that mean? What does reckoning mean? Well, reckoning means a time when past mistakes or misdeeds must be punished or paid for. So it's kind of like it's judgment day. It's time to pay the piper. Everything is done. It's also a time when it's a testing time when the decrees of one's success or failure will be revealed. It's like when you were in school, if those of us that we've got to go back a while to remember, when you've were stu- all the studying is done, the Scantron is on your desk. Do they still do Scantrons or am I really old? Okay, thank you. Whew. And it's time to take the test. There's no more studying. That's it. Everything that you've learned, everything that you prepared for is going to, you know, shine forth for good or for worse. That's kind of like the day of wrecking. This is it. 
it's final. Everything that Isaiah and the prophets have been warning Judah about is done. All the warning is done, and now it's the day of reckoning. But before we move on, I want to explain this day, because as you look at that, you, you may be thinking, well, is this talking about for Judah or for way further out, like the day of judgment, you may hear, like the final day of judgment. Well, whenever you hear the, the day of the Lord, and specifically here, or this one in general, a day of reckoning, there's two understandings of this, and I'm going to show you that before I move on, because I think it's important. There is a, a temporal day of the Lord, and then there's an ultimate day of the Lord. Because through the prophets, as you're reading through the prophets and studying the Bible, you hear the day of the Lord. And you may think, well, that's way off in the future. But Scripture uses the day of the Lord as a day of God's judgment, a day of God's reckoning, even in a temporal sense. And let me give you some examples of that before we proceed. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. So later in Isaiah's prophecy, just a few chapters over, in 13, look at starting in verse 9, what the scripture says. It says this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will, nin- will not flash forth, excuse me, will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark. And when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. So you've probably heard this before in the New Testament, right? This sounds very familiar. Oh, that must be talking about the end of the world, right? Because the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth anymore. There's going to be these cataclysmic things happening if you read that in a literal sense. But look with me for the context of this. Go back here to the, let's see. We're in chapter 13, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, because the context is going to give us exactly what he's talking about. Look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. So we just read what was going to happen, right? So who's it going to happen to? Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw. So these cataclysmic things, or this way of the, the prophets speak in these cataclysmic terms doesn't literally mean that the stars are going to fall out of the earth. It's saying that there's going to be judgment at this time on who? Babylon. Verse 1, Babylon. The, the stars, you know, again, the star, what does it say? Let's go back. The stars will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. It's, it's called apocalyptic literature. It's describing that something great is going to happen. Now, can that happen literally in the future? Yes, maybe it will. But in this instance, as you're reading it, in Isaiah, he's talking about Babylon. Did the sun really stop giving forth its light? No, he's talking about it in a figurative way to demonstrate that it's something awesome is going to happen. Further, look, in the, look at the prophet Joel. That's a few books over. It's one of those prophets where you skip too many pages, you'll miss, just like I am. It helps when you have tabs in your Bible. Or if you're real familiar with the Old Testament prophets, what page number is it on? Okay, Joel chapter 1, look at verse 15. Joel, we've actually studied this prophet a few years ago. Joel chapter 1 verse 15 says, alas the day. So you're thinking the day, the end times, cataclysmic, 
reckoning of God. Alas, a day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So when you read that, you're thinking, okay, this is end times, the end of the world when this happens. But if you look at the very beginning of Joel, look at verses 2 through 3 to find out who is he talking to. Is he talking to the people that will be living at the end of the world or somebody else? Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your day or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation what the gnawing locusts have left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming lo- locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten, and what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. What is, who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel there. So this is about a time before the nation of Israel will be judged. It's similar to the time that Isaiah is talking to the nation of Israel. So again, the day of the Lord is a temple time as well as an ultimate time. And let me give an example of that, like meaning the end of the world. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I believe that Peter is talking about the end of all human history here. In chapter 3, starting in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, same terminology, but again, the context determines what he's talking about. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's that vindication for God's people and himself. So there, I just wanted to kind of set the tone here. There's two instances where the day of the Lord is used, and the context will tell us what he's talking about. Is it something temporal, like immediately going to happen, or something far off in the future? And so it's always important, just as a, as a lesson in Bible study, don't just read one verse in isolation. Read the context. Read two or three verses in front of it, two or three verses behind it, so that you understand what the writers were talking about. So now back to our text in Isaiah chapter 2. So the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. And now the context, as we've been reading, is going to tell us what this is. And I'm going to tell you it's a temporal thing, meaning it's going to happen on Judah. This is who Isaiah is talking to. He's not talking to those people that will be living at the end of time. He's talking to Judah. Right, Because back in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm just going to read this so you know the context. The word, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's who this prophecy is concerning. So the day of reckoning is coming on Judah and Jerusalem. So let's look at this now. The rest of verse 12. He says, the the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up 
that he may be abased. So again, this is coming on Judah because what we've been studying over the past few weeks is Judah has stopped trusting in the Lord. They have trusted in idols, of which we learned about last week. They've given themselves to idolatrous worship. They've become like the nations all around them, and they have forgotten the Lord, their God, in their life. The only time that they go to the Lord is on the time when they go to worship on, at that time, which will be Saturday. They do the religious traditions that they're supposed to do as Jewish believers, as believers of Yahweh. That's what we're supposed to do. And so they do that, but they're not doing it with all their heart. They don't really trust in God because they're trusting in all these other idols of the people that live around them. So this day of reckoning is going to be on Judah, again, for trusting in themselves. They become proud and boastful, as we learned last week. They trust in the things that they do. And look at verses 13 through, 17, uh, 13 through 16. As God says, his day of wrecking is going to be coming upon certain things outside of men and women. And it's coming on these things because these are things that Judah has begun to trust in and put their hope in. And it also shows that God is greater than all things in his judgment. So let's look at verse 13. So actually verses 13 and 14 show that God's judgment is going to come upon all creation. Look at verse 13. And it will be against, the day of reckoning, it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, and all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the hills that are lifted up. Sometimes people can become enamored with nature, can't they? I remember a few weeks ago, uh, we went to Yosemite, and have you, have you ever been to Yosemite? Yosemite is beautiful. And uh, we, we went on this uh, tour. You know, we sit on this, uh, this tram, and they take you around the park, and they talk about how beautiful Yosemite is, and how it was formed, and who discovered it, and how they're preserving it. And me, you know, being the good Christian believer, I'm waiting for God to be introduced to, you know, this is God's creation, that God preserves it, but that was never mentioned. Man was praised for Yosemite, for all their efforts about Yosemite. And, and that's just one way I thought of an example of how men, instead of giving praise to the creator, praise the creation or praise men for what they're doing to conserve uh, a national park or nature in general. And some people go as far as worshiping Mother Nature. And here God is saying to the nation of Judah that I'm going to be against all those things, all those things that you think are great, the great cedars, of Lebanon, these lofty mountains, there's going to be a day of reckoning for that as well. So if Israel's pinning their hope on how great nature is and the things that they've created, so to speak, God's saying, I'm against all that. You put your hope and trust in that. You put your hope and trust in conservation, renewed energy. You know, I'm going to come up against that, so to, so to speak, in this instance. So God's day of reckoning is going to come against all creation. And so hopefully Judah's not trusting in that. Not only that, look at verses uh, 15 through 16. This is talking about human achievement. The things that humanity has achieved 
uh, or maybe specifically Judah, or what Judah is trusting in, he says this in verse 15, against every high tower and against every fortified wall. So things that man has built, things that maybe they hide in to protect themselves when foreign armies come. These high walls that Judah uh, when are fighting, maybe they're trusting that we've built this city so big that nothing can destroy it. Or look at these high walls that we've built as well. And these fortified cities. He's saying, I'm going to be against every one of those as well. In verse 16, against all the ships of Tarshish. Maybe it's commerce. They're trusting in their prosperity as a nation. They're trusting in their ability to do work. As the end of verse 16 says, and against all the beautiful craft. So Judah is trusting in anything but God. They trust in their the, the mother nature, so to speak. They trust in human achievement. And they've forgotten about God. And that's why God is saying, I'm against all these things that you're putting your trust in. Now, they're not bad until they become what? Your idol. Until they become what you trust in and you hope for. And you start to fall away from God and forget about God. And as we've been studying over the past few weeks, that's exactly what's happening in the nation of Israel and here specifically with Judah is they're trusting in everything else but God. And that's why in verse 17, God concludes by saying, the pride of man will be humbled and who's going to be exalted? God alone will be exalted. God alone will finally be vindicated in Judah's eyes. He's going to be exalted above all things. And so Isaiah is telling them, this is it. There's going to be that day when the warnings are going to stop, and this is going to happen. And what's going to happen on that day? He gives them verse 18. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves and rocks and into the holes of, ground, of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. So here there's a few verses that talk about when that day, when God vindicates himself on Judah, that these idols that they're putting their trust in, they're going to throw them away. They're going to realize that they can't save them from the judgment of God. So much so that what do they do? They try to hide from the judgment of God by going into caves. Which makes us think, it's like, will we, people really think that they can hide from judgment of God by running into a cave? How is this judgment of God going to come on the nation Judah? Well, what's really going to happen, and we'll see two instances here, is that God is going to bring a foreign army against the nation of Judah God isn't going to peer down from heaven on Judah and show himself and they're going to try to hide. No, God uses human forces to come in and attack Judah. And so that's why they're hiding in caves. That's why they're going underground, to hide from these foreign armies that God brings. So let me show you something here. This is prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've been going back to Deuteronomy quite a bit during this time of our study because this is, remember, the covenant people of God, they have covenant blessings and covenant cursings, and they were all laid out in the book of Deuteronomy 
after they had come out of Egypt. So in Deuteronomy chapter 26, and so I would just, I'm just going to skip around here because these cursings cover verses 25 through 68, and so I'm not going to just read them. I'm going to read specifically the cursings that talk about God using a foreign army because Israel's going to know that this is the hand of God on them because of what the scriptures have said and what the prophets have been telling them over and over again. So let's go to verse uh, 25 in Deuteronomy 28. Looking at verse 25, it says this, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated by your enemies. Now this is all happening. Moses laid this out. He goes, if you guys get into the promised land and you stop trusting God, then these are the things that are going to happen. And in verse 25, again, he says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated by your enemies, and you shall go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 26, Your carcass will be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beast of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. This is God's judgment on his people who have stopped trusting. He says, This is going to happen to you one day if you don't trust in the Lord. Skip down to verse 32. It says, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, so taken as slaves, while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. Verse 33, A people who you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually, and you shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. So God's telling them, I'm going to bring in a people, and they're going to take your children, they're going to take your land, and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's just going to drive you crazy because you can't do anything about it. That's some severe anxiety right there. Seeing something happening and not having the ability to do anything about it. But again, God has been warning Judah and Israel for years that this was going to happen. And they have not listened to them. But finally, here Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a day of reckoning when these things will take place. Drop down to verse 47. He says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. That describes Israel to a T. They're worshiping God, but not with joy and a glad heart. They're doing it out of obligation, or that's what we're supposed to do. But because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and glad heart, for the abundance of all things, uh, reading on, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord your God will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until, you, until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for your old, nor show favor to the young. Now you can understand why they're trying to hide in caves and in holes in the ground. Because this kind of nation who is ultimately going to be Babylon, is going to come against them. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. 
it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land, and it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. So again, you see the prophecy that Isaiah is giving them back in Isaiah chapter 2 is what they've already been told. Was going to be how their ancestors have been told. And warned and warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. And finally, this is the day of reckoning. These things are going to happen. So that was in the past. Isaiah is telling them what's going to happen in the near future. And I just want to show you from Scripture in Second Chronicles. Turn to chapter 36. You're getting a very good history lesson of Old Testament right here. Second Chronicles, verse 36. Verse 15 is the actual description of this prophecy taking place. Second Chronicles, everybody find it? If you have an iPhone or a phone, you probably found it already. It says this. The Lord your God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by the messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So when you read these things at first, like, man, God seems harsh. No, he's told them over and over and over again. At some point, the day of reckoning has to come. The talk, you have to stop talking. You've been warned enough as we've been studying. So here the... Uh, the writer of Chronicles is reiterating that because God had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, that's why he warns them. Don't we as parents warn our children because we love them? We warn them, don't do this because this is going to happen. Or if you do that, this is going to happen. But at some point, we have to allow that to happen for them to learn. Look at verse 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, meaning Israel, despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. So the mocking and the disobeying of God has happened so much that God says that's it. It's the day of reckoning, which we've just read about. This is where it's happened. Therefore, look at verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin old man or infirm, and he gave them into his hand all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers were brought them, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with the fire and destroyed all its venerable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. So eventually what's going to happen here, what Isaiah is prophesying, we just read about. Babylon is going to come in. They're going to destroy the beautiful city of God, Burn the temple down, take all its articles, take all men and women, just leave a few in the land, take them into captivity for 70 years before they return. That is the day of reckoning that Isaiah is talking about. And so as Isaiah says this, now let's turn back to Isaiah. At the very end, look at what Isaiah says in chapter, 
are in verse 22. Because Israel should know these prophecies that were spoken of. They sit in temple every Sunday. Their mothers and fathers raise them up in the Torah, speak to them the law, and they listen to it. And so they know that these things would happen to them, but they don't believe it. So Isaiah one time reiterates to them, they're going to happen, there's going to be a day of reckoning, and all this is going to happen. And look what he says at the end of verse 22. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should we be, or why should he be esteemed? What is he saying? He's saying, knowing all these things, why do you continually trust in men, in yourself? Man who is a creation, not the creator. He has the breath of God in his nostrils. Why should he be so highly esteemed? Why are you guys so puffed up and trusting yourselves, knowing that one day this is all going to happen to you? That's the question he poses to them. It doesn't say how they respond, but when you read 2 Chronicles, verse chapter 36, you see how they responded. They continually mocked the prophets, despised the word of the Lord, so much so that they were without remedy, they were to be taken away into captivity. So that's the encouraging message of Isaiah chapter... No, just kidding. <laughs> lighten up. Let's, let's lighten up here. I was teasing Jared this morning. I said, Jared, you know, you got to teach about the wonderful kingdom of God in verses 1 through 5 and then left me all this, you know, all the judgment of God. But hey, it's the word of God. And as we read this morning, the mercy of God. God delights in his mercy. So we can listen to these things as warnings to us. How so? Well, let me ask you this. Where do you put your trust in this morning? What are you holding on to, to trust with your life. As we saw the nation of Israel, they trusted in mother nature and human achievements. What do you put your trust in? I know we have this, you know, some of us this morning, not me included, but we're young, right? You're young, not me. You're young. So you like look at the world. I have the whole, my whole life ahead of me, my whole youthfulness, and that's good. But don't trust in that so much so that you have, there's no guarantee that we have a long life. Nobody promises how long we shall live. Nobody promises that we're going to have, we're going to get married, we're going to have a great job, we're going to have, you know, two or three kids and live in a big house. Don't trust in those things. Those are good things to want and to have, but is that what ultimately brings true happiness? Is that what brings salvation to you? Don't trust in your youthfulness. Don't trust in Mother Nature. Maybe you love nature, and that's a great thing. But don't look at Mother Nature as your salvation. Like, that's a thing that one day is going to, you know, the earth is going to go on forever. And somehow, like I did when I was younger, and I've told you this before, you know, science is going to find a way to keep me alive forever. And that's what I trusted in as a teenager. I kept thinking that. They haven't. Don't trust in human achievement. You know what? I'm going to get so much money. I trust in my job. I'm always going to have my job. I have 401k, the ESOP, whatever it is, that that's going to be the ultimate salvation of my life. That's what I'm trusting on. Because how many of us in here have ever been laid off and lost a job like that? I remember the last job I lost. I came home from vacation, and my boss called me in. 
said, how was your vacation? I said, great. And we went to the Grand Canyon. He says, well, just let you know that your job's been eliminated. Wow. Just like that. Just like, I just came back from vacation, and it was gone. Like that. And that was scary. What was I going to do now? I, have two, I had three kids, and we just blew all our money on vacation. <laughs> now what? That can happen to each and every one of us. And it probably will at one, at one point in our lives. Is that what you're trusting in? Is that your hope and your salvation? Just a question for each and every one of us to ask ourselves. Do we trust in the Lord God for our salvation? Or do we trust in our own human achievement? Our own abilities? Because guess what? One day God has a day of reckoning for each and every one of us as well. There's a day when God will come back literally to vindicate himself. Remember I started off the sermon this morning talking about it seems like injustice prevails, that unrighteousness prevails, the church is being persecuted all the time, the world is growing, you know, their, their opinions are against godly ways. We live in a culture that does not value Christianity. They like us sitting in church and that's it. But don't take Christianity outside and tell somebody about it. There's going to be a day when that's no longer going to happen. Where God's going to come back and vindicate himself. But not only that, the awesome thing for each and every one of us is those of us who trust in God, he's going to vindicate us as well. We are going to be vindicated. And let me show you that in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21... Uh, look at verses 1 through 5. This is the final vindication of God who will be highly exalted. And for each and every one of you this morning who trust in God for your salvation. Look at Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's so awesome. And then this, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And there will no longer be any death. Praise God for that. Nobody's going to die anymore. I finally get my living forever dream. No more death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write. Like, write these down. For these words are faithful and true. God will be vindicated. God's word will be vindicated. All the people who say the Bible's not true, you believe in a bunch of fairy tales and fake stories, right there, this is the final vindication where God says, write these things. These things are faithful and true that I'm saying to you. I'm going to come back. There is a place called heaven. There is a time when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. All things will be brand new. There will be final vindication for God and his people. That's the mercy. And mercy, as we sung, will triumph over, what was that last word? 
Judgment. I'm going to get Lizzie's lyrics. Thank you, judgment, right? They will triumph over judgment, but that means there is going to be a judgment. There is judgment at the end. And judgment comes upon all those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And I want to read that to you because it's, we have to know about that. Just flip over one page or one, two chapters in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, look at what it says. It says, And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. And he, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and, his head are many, and on his head are many, many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the armies which were in heaven, clothed in white, fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it it may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then drop down now with me to chapter... Oh, no, let's keep reading. Uh, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun... And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And drop down to chapter 20 now, looking at verses 11 through 14. So there, similar to what we studied in Isaiah... That God is, God is now the army that's coming against the nations. He's not using somebody else. He's coming against everybody who opposes him now. And in verse, uh, tw- chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scary stuff if you think about it. There is a day of reckoning that God has in the future. And for those who trust in God, you have the promise of God dwelling with you and Him wiping away all pain and suffering and tears. But the, tr- the truth is there's also the other side, that if you trust in anything else but Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you will be thrown into the lake of fire. When He opens up the book of life and doesn't find your name there, That's the day of reckoning. There's no more chances. You can't say, oh, but. But wait, one more. No, that's it. There's the day of reckoning that's coming. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to don't wait. For those of you who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, 
to call out to him, cry out to him for salvation. And I'll close with this, just posing these final questions. Like Isaiah did with the nation of Judah, I would say to us as well, stop regarding man so highly. Stop trusting in man so much. Do you trust him? Is that where your ultimate hope is? Do you let your pride keep you from submitting your life to Christ because you trust in yourself? Be careful of that. Again, be careful of letting your pride keep you from coming to the Lord. Not only that, be careful of letting your pride keep you from praising God for all that you have. We studied, especially last week, how it was pride that kept Judah from thanking God for all that they have. They kept saying, I did this, I did this. I worked hard for this. You may have, but God gave you the ability to do that. So I would just say, stop regarding man so highly. And I would say this, let us be people who trust in God for our salvation. Each and every one of us this morning, ask yourselves, do you trust in Jesus' work on the cross for your salvation? Or do you trust that, you know, I'm good enough, I do good things, or I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, I don't do those things, so I'm a good person. Because that's not what gets you your name written in the book of life. It's trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. So let us be people who trust in God for our salvation. And secondly, let us be people who are ever thankful to God for all that he has given us. Let us not become so boastful and so prideful in our prosperity that we forget to thank God for everything that we have. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we again thank you for your word. Even your words of warning that maybe sometimes seem harsh, it to some of us may seem that they are maybe a little unforgiving. But as we read through your prophets, Lord, it is your compassion that you keep giving warnings to people. You warn them and warn them and warn them because of your great love for them. And I pray this morning that nobody in this room would leave this morning without heeding your warning. That they would not scoff at it that they would not push it off thinking that they have time because they're so young. Because nobody knows, Lord, how long we have on this earth. And I pray this morning that each and every person would feel that sense of urgency to give their life to you if they have not done it. That they would cry out to you and ask you to forgive them. And that they would put their trust in you as Lord and Savior and follow you and learn your ways. And for those of us, Lord God, this morning who are all already believers, who trust in you, who have given their life to you, I pray that you would help us, as I said at the end, to be ever thankful for all that you give us. That we would never become boastful in the things that we have or the things that we are given. But that we would recognize that all good things come from you. And you would help us to live a life of thankfulness. And so we ask this, Lord God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. Amen.